Samuel, we're going to pick it up in chapter 12. And you may or may not remember, since it's been a while since we've been in 1 Samuel. Last time we were in 1 Samuel, Saul had his victory. He did things right. We saw that he was gifted by God, that he had the things that he needed in order to be a success. And as such, he moved forward in that, had the victory. He was even faced, right at the end of his victory, with an opportunity to take the glory and say, yeah, I did it, you know, because everybody was excited about having a king. But he didn't. He pointed to the Lord and he says, oh, it's God. God's the one who gave us a victory and everybody's stoked. So they bring... They bring Saul to a place and they anoint him as king again. They're excited about the possibilities and the things that that the future holds for him. And he stays in that place, Saul, the scripture lays out for us. He stays there uh, for two years and then he's going to make some changes. But before we get there, in chapter 12, right after the people are excited, the victory's just been won. Saul's done good. The kingdom looks secure. Samuel, before he goes off into that good night, before he walks out into the sunset, he's got a few things he wants to say. So in chapter 12, he encourages the people what to do now and how to stay on track and how to continue to walk in that victorious life. And for you and I, it's important that we can glean from what Samuel says, because if we're going to walk in victory... If we're going to walk with the Lord, staying on that high place, staying in that place where we know we're doing what God's called us to do and what God wants us to do, we've got to learn the lessons that Samuel lays out for us. And hopefully we'll be able to see them tonight. As we take a look, it says in verse 1, Now Samuel said to all Israel, Indeed, I have heeded your voice and all that you said to me, and I have made a king over you. And now, here is the king walking before you. And I am old and gray-headed, and look, my sons are with you, and I have walked before you from my childhood to this day. And we remember, right, Samuel called from his mother's womb. His mother made a promise that she was going to make sure that Samuel was raised in the house of God if God would give her a child. He did. She fulfilled her promise. And Samuel says, I've been there for good, but there's something else we want to grasp. You remember way back... Around chapter 8, 7, something like that, the, the people began to tell Samuel his kids weren't walking like they should. They were taking bribes. They were doing things they should not do. So here Samuel says, look, my children are with you. That means what he's saying to them, look, I've taken them out of leadership. They're not here as priests. They're not here as people who would rule over you or be judges. They're right out there with you. So, you know, I, I fulfill, fulfilled that. <clears throat> I walked before you, even from my childhood to this day. And he said, here I am, witness against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I cheated? Whom have I oppressed? Of whose hand have I received any bride with which to blind my eyes? And I will restore it to you. I like what Samuel does here because the New Testament scriptures call us as believers to live above reproach. And what Samuel is saying here is if you guys got something against me, tell me and I'm going to make it right. If you think I cheated somebody, if you think I done wrong, if you think I, I, I took advantage, here I am. And I'll gladly pay that back. Paul would write in the book of Romans, chapter 14, that we are to be those people who pursue peace, not who pursue our rights. Samuel, I'm sure, is feeling in some ways, I don't know why you guys rejected me. I did a good job. I was leading you. Things were going good. But you didn't want me no more. You wanted a king. And so he he stands before him and says, who has anything against me? Who did I rip off? That's a challenging thing for us to say among the people. To stand before our neighbors and say, which of you have I ever cheated? Which have I ever done wrong to? Which have I ever taken advantage of? Here I am to to repay those things. Paul would write in his epistles that he was above reproach. that, That he lived his life in such a way that men wouldn't look at him and say, hey, you're a dirty, rotten, good for nothing cheat. He lived his life before men 
above reproach. He, he didn't take advantage. <clears throat> and so we see that same attitude in Samuel here, that same attitude before the people. In fact, the people say in verse 4, You have not cheated us or oppressed us or have taken anything from any man's hand. So he said to them that day, The Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day. And his anointed is the king. <clears throat> the king now, Saul, is his anointed. Don't ever lose sight of that. Because David's going to spend ten years hiding in the caves, even after God has anointed David to be king, because David says, Saul is God's anointed, and God will remove Saul when it's my time. Think just as we're, as we're looking at this and as we're coming up to the time of David, and we'll see some things in regard to that tonight. As we look toward that, I want you to think about that in regard to your situation and the things that you're facing and the things that are going on around you and recognize that there David said, that's God's anointed. I'm not moving until God moves him. He was allowing God to do the work. In fact, David will write in Psalm 46, be still and know I am God. In the Hebrew, that be still means get your hands off. Let go. You know that phrase, let go and let God, right? That's a struggle for everybody, isn't it? One time or another, we look at the things that are going on, the situations, we think that's not fair, it's not right, I need to do something about it. But God says, David was a man after God's own heart, and he patiently waited for God to do the work. Not to go do the work for him. He patiently waited for God to do his work. Well, as we see, the same as we look here. He says, listen, he's anointed. There's the anointed, the king. He's witnessed this day that you have not found anything in my hand. And they answered, he's a witness. So Samuel said to the people, it is the Lord who raised up Moses and Aaron and who brought your fathers up from the land of Egypt. Listen, he's going to give them a, a history lesson, but don't lose sight of this. This is not the history of the people. This is the history of God's deliverance. This is God's story. He's not telling this from the point of view of the people. He's telling them, that, look what God has done. Look what God has done. Look how God has been there for you. And that is a vital thing that we have to remember to make a part of our lives. Because as soon as we lose sight of what God has done and how God has redeemed and how God has moved, then all you're going to be left with is all your disappointments. Where was God when instead of God was here now? He did this thing. He's moved in my life this way. It's that old song, right? What have you done for me lately? Sometimes that's the way we treat the Lord, isn't it? We forget his story. We forget the things that he's done for us. So Samuel's going to recite that for him. <clears throat> Remember, Moses and Aaron, God raised them up. Now, therefore, stand still that I may reason with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous acts of the Lord, which he did to you and your fathers. It's the righteous acts of of God and how God's been there for his people. In verse 8, when Jacob had gone into Egypt and your fathers cried out to the Lord and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them to dwell in this place. And when they forgot the Lord their God, he sold them into the hand of Sisera. You may remember we studied about Sisera in the book of Judges. This is during the time of Deborah and Barak. He was sold into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. And then they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we forsook the Lord and served the Baals and the Asterisks, and now deliver us from the hand of our enemies, and we will serve you. And later on, he says, The Lord sent Jerubbabel. <coughs> you may remember, this is Gideon. This is the name Gideon took when he went out and he wiped out all the high places of Baal. They called him Yarub Baal. It's, it means literally he who contends with Baal, who, who's done battle against this false deity. And, and it says, the Lord sent Jerubal, and Bedan, Jephthah, and Samuel, and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, 
And you dwelt in safety. Listen, look at all the ways God has watched over you. And then he says in verse 12, the reason why they asked for a king. And when you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, had come against you, you said, No, but a king will reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. Samuel says, Hey, this is, this is your history. All the time God delivered you. All the opportunities when he raised up a leader to carry you through. When he brought the leadership you needed and the miracle that you needed. Or he gave you the strength that you needed to walk through whatever it was that God had called you to walk through. I mean, think, David, David knew these kind of things firsthand, didn't he? That's why still today, when we come together at some of the most difficult times of life, at a <clears throat> funeral service or celebration of life, I guarantee you there's one psalm they always read. Psalm 23, right? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. One of the main issues within that psalm is, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, not though I get to go around it, though I don't have to go through any difficulties or any issues, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, your hand is with me. You are with me. Your rod and your staff, they guide me, they comfort me. All these things the psalmist understood because he understood that God was with him all the way through his life. And he rehearsed that lest he forget. Because the children of Israel forgot, right? Let us not think that we somehow have mastered the ability not to forget what God has done for us. We too can, can fall in that same place and forget And say, no, I don't want the Lord ruling over me. I want something else. Something else can deliver me. The people thought a king would make all their problems go away. It doesn't. It's still the Lord who delivers them. Still the Lord. It's the same way in our nation. I hope a new king is going to make all our problems go away. But it is the Lord who delivers. When my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray. When we as a nation turn to the Lord, things will change. As long as we don't, we're going to continue down that road. Just like the children of Israel who rejected God from being their king. So he says in verse 13, Now therefore, here is the king whom you have chosen And whom you have desired, the king you deserve. And take note, the Lord has set a king over you. Now, he gives them advice. Here's what you got to remember, guys. Here's what you need to remember. If you fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice, do not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then both you and the king who reigns over you will continue following the Lord your God. God's got a way of making things pretty simple. I like simple because it makes it easy for me to understand. What's he saying? If you fear the Lord, that means if the Lord God is the motivating factor in your life. Well, sometimes it's, it's fear of my bank account that's a motivating factor in my life. Sometimes it's the fear of the economy or the, the fear of the world or the fear of man. But when the motivating factor in my life is the fear of God, not that I'm quaking that God's going to bring judgment, but that I revere Him, that I appreciate Him, that I respect Him, that I live my life where He is exalted. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? The fear of man, the Scripture lays out for us, is a snare, it's a trap. It's going to catch you, bind you, Hold you in bondage. But the fear of the Lord, there is the beginning of wisdom. So he says the first thing, if you fear the Lord, fear the Lord. Have him in that rightful place in your life. The second thing, he says, if you serve him. The world is full of people who think their whole relationship with God revolves around going to church and studying the word. Hey, those are good things. But the Lord said, not only do I want you to fear me, that I'm in that rightful place in your life as your king, as your ruler of your life, but I also want you to serve me. To see a need within the body of Christ and fill it. 
more often than not, we see a need in the body of Christ and wonder why somebody else hasn't filled it. That might be because that's your spot. That's your place. First thing he says, fear the Lord. Make God king in your life. Second thing he says, serve him. Find a way to serve God. Every person on the face of the earth within the body of Christ is given a responsibility. Paul says we all fulfill a part within the body. You want to know how many different parts there are? Consider your body. How many different parts are in your body? Quite a few. Right? My The bones in my hand are not like the bones in my ankle. They do different things. The the organs in my body or the skin or or whatever it is. It all serves a purpose. Paul says that as believers we ought to fulfill our part within the body of Christ. Samuel's saying that way back then. He says to the guys, you need to fear God. Allow him to still rule in your life. And then you need to serve him. Find a way to serve God. And you can serve him a million ways. It's not all just preaching or witnessing. Although those are very, very important parts. There's There's a way. There's a place. See a need. Fill it. Be a part of what God wants to do. First, fear him. Second, serve him. Third, obey his voice. Obey his voice. Do you know that there are times when God speaks to you in a still, small voice? And he says to you, do this. And more often than not, we will say, that's the pepperoni pizza I had last night. It's something else. It's not him. See, that's what he's talking about here. Obey my voice. There are times when God directs his people. When he directs me. There are times when I'm faithful and I, and I hear that still small voice. And no matter what it sounds like or what I think about it or how many excuses I can come up with why not to do it. There are times I do it. Walk in obedience and obey his voice. And there are times I don't. And I always will find out sooner or later that it was him, not the pepperoni pizza, and I should have listened. Obey my voice. In the New Testament, the Bible talks about the spoken word, the rima. uh, Receiving that spoken word of the Spirit moving in your life and speaking into your life and being obedient to that. Allow that to do that surgery in you. It also speaks of the written word. The Lagos and the Rima. It says that the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, right? The word of God. It also speaks about that spoken word of God. The spirit speaking into your life and being obedient to the voice of God. That God should be in that rightful place in my life as king. That I need to find a way to serve him and not just sit around and receive, but also look for ways to give. And that I need to be obedient when he speaks into my life. When he says, in that still small voice, man, you really wish you'd spend some more time with me. You have that nagging desire somewhere in the back of your mind, I should read the word more. Or I should just stop and pray. You know when that, that, that voice speaks to me? Every time I lose keys. You guys ever lose keys? I wish I never lost keys. <clears throat> we were down in California for a little trip. And we borrowed a motorhome from somebody. Kind enough to loan us a motorhome. <clears throat> you know motorhomes have keys? My trailer, I haven't seen the keys for my trailer and I don't know the last time. Well, I drove the motor home and I parked it and got it all set. And we stayed in that motor home for two weeks outside the kid's house. Spent time with the grandbabies, had all kind of fun. Got up <clears throat> on the day when it was time to come home. And I said to Kathy, where's the keys? And she said, what keys? Oh, you're kidding me. So we begin looking for the keys. The moment we start looking for the keys, every time. Now, I'd love to tell you that doesn't happen very often, but it's almost a weekly occurrence for me. I hear the voice of God saying, pray. And my pride says, no, 
I don't need to pray. I'm, I know the dumb keys got to be right here on the counter someplace. They got to be right here. For crying out loud, I just had them. I drove it here. <clears throat> so I'll, I'll spend the first hour usually looking in rebellion. And then I'll pray. But I still didn't find the keys. Never did find them. I hope they moved the motorhome by now. I don't know. <clears throat> Actually, they had a spare set and we were able to, to, to move it. But I have no idea the mystery. Maybe when we unpack, we'll find it in the suitcase. I have no I don't know. But when the voice of God speaks, every time I, in the midst of it, I know I'm not being obedient. But I'm mad. That don't ever happen to you guys? In the midst of knowing that God's telling you to do something specific, and you're just saying, I have the same heart of rebellion the children of Israel had. I'm capable of doing the same stuff. He says, obey his voice. Let him reign as king. Be obedient in those things. Man, life's hard enough when I do it by myself. You think I'd know by now. To walk in obedience, just like Jesus, who always did the things his father gave him to do. Not most of the time. Always. Listen to his voice. And then he says, not just that, but then he says, and do not rebel against the commandment of the Lord. Now he's talking about the word. The spoken Voice of God speaking into our life. And then the commandment of God. The word of God. The, the other, another word for that in the Hebrew is the law or the Torah. The, the books of Moses. To be obedient to the commandments that God's given. Be obedient to his word. Receive that word and say, man, your word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. I think he means it. Can we not rebel against the commandments of God? Hey, this is how people will find themselves spoken of by God as a man after God's own heart. That's how. God is king. Find a way to serve him. I'm obedient to his voice and I don't rebel against his word. And... and The promise that Samuel gives, then both you and the king who reigns over you will continue following the Lord your God. You're going to stay on track. You're not going to fall off. You're not going to backslide. You're not going to have these issues in your life if we say, that's what I'm going to do. That's how I'm going to follow the Lord. That's how I want to obey him. In verse 15, he says, however, if you do not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then... The hand of the Lord will be against you as, against, as it was against your fathers. Now therefore stand and see this great thing which the Lord will do before your eyes. He says, I'm going to show you a miracle. I'm going to show you that this message is from the Lord. So he says, is it today not the wheat harvest? I will call to the Lord and he will send thunder and rain that you may perceive and see that your wickedness is great which you have done in the sight of the Lord and asking a king for yourself. Right back in Proverbs 26, the, the Lord lays out, hey, the rain will come from the Lord God. But they would always go to Baal. Listen, for them, the biggest problem in their life was, is it going to rain or not? And for a lot of people, it still is is issue. But, but again, for a lot of us, it's something different. Maybe it's, can I get this job or not? Am I going to be able to pay this bill or not? Am I going to, am I going to be able to, you know, write out this situation or whatever? And the Lord says, I am the Lord of the harvest who delivers you, who's got you where you are right now, and I have a plan to get you through. Now that doesn't mean that all the pieces are going to fall together like you want. But God says, I'm here, I'm moving, I'm orchestrating in your life, trust me. The children of Israel, rather than trusting God for the rain, would run to Baal. That's who Baal was. He was the God of the rain, the God of the storm. And so they would say, well, I'll worship Jesus, or I'll worship God on the Sabbath. Saturday, I'll come do all my my Jewish stuff. 
But Monday, I'm going to go see Baal. Because I might as well try to work both sides of this camp and make sure I get rain. A lot of times we, we think about how God wants to guide us and how God wants to provide for us and we step right out of that place of waiting on the Lord and trusting in Him and right into our schemes, our plans, our ideas. James talks about that man. James calls that man double-minded. If any of you lacks wisdom, remember the verse? Let him ask of God and he'll give it. But let him ask what? Not doubting. For the man who doubts is a man driven by the winds. He's going here. He's going there. He's already made up his mind to do what he's going to do. And now he's looking for God to bless it. And the Lord says, don't expect that man to receive anything. Come to me. Trust in the Lord. Don't lean into your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And what's he say he'll do? He will guide your steps. He'll do it. Their problem was rain. Ours, sometimes it's different. Sometimes it's something else. But are we able to stand in that place and say, you know what, I'm going to trust the Lord. I'm going to trust God. I'm going I'm to walk according to His commandments. He's brought me to this place. And I don't necessarily know how He's going to do it. But before I go call the lawyer, before I go deal with this, or before I go change jobs, or before I go do all that, I'm going to Him first. Because he's the God who brings the rain. He's the the Lord of the harvest. He's the one who puts the pieces together. And I'm going to pray and I'm going to seek the Lord. And then I'm going to make my plans. Because the Lord says, he'll guide my steps. He'll lead me. So he says, I'm going to show you that God is able, that he is able to deliver you. And so he said that the Lord, he called out to the Lord in verse 18, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. Now, I guarantee you, a million times they went and prayed and did the stuff to Baal, and it probably rained once in a while. When Samuel said, I'm going to show you God's real, Lord, let it rain, and boom, the thunder hit and the rain fell. I promise you, they were like, God is able. God is able to do and fulfill the things that he says he will do. So, in verse 19 it says, And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord. It's the saddest word in the Bible. Your God. Pray for us to the Lord your God. Until he becomes the Lord our God. Until we, like Jesus, when the disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. What did he say? Say like this, our Father, who art in heaven. It's our God. It's our Lord. Hey, pray to the Lord your God that we may not die, for we have added to our sins the evil of asking for a king for ourselves. So they they realize they they made a mistake, or they, they shouldn't have asked for a king. I'm not sure how much their hearts were really geared toward repentance or how much they were just freaked out that it started raining when Samuel said it would. But they asked him to pray for him. And Samuel said to the people, Do not fear, for you have done all this wickedness, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Man, ever since Deuteronomy chapter 6, God has told the people, I only want one thing. Love the Lord your God. With all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Love Him. Same thing here. Serve the Lord. Follow the Lord. Let Him be your all in all. Everything. Your everything. What you desire. And He says, and do not turn aside, for then you will not go after empty things which cannot profit or deliver, for they are nothing. I, I wish that my life was not filled so much with chasing empty things that don't matter. It wasn't going after stuff that can't deliver. Whenever I consider this particular verse, it reminds me of Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55, the Lord said, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the water. 
And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. For why do you spend money for what is not bread? And your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good. Let your soul delight itself in abundance and incline your ear and come to me. Well, that's, that's the cry of the Lord's heart. Don't chase after all the emptiness. You see, they think they got Saul now and everything's going to be okay. But you see, we're, we're still only delivered. We're still only saved by the hand of God. <clears throat> no matter what the case, we're still only saved by him. He says in verse 22, For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you his people. God will keep his promise. Now listen to verse 23. And moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. Samuel says that it's a sin against the Lord when we cease to pray for the people. I have to remind myself of that all the time. Because I can write somebody off. You ever done that? You ever go, you know, that guy's just a knucklehead or that girl's a... Yeah, there's times. There's times when we think, man, what am I doing? But you see, the Lord says, through Samuel, far be it from me that I would sin against the Lord and cease praying for you, but I will teach you the good in the right way. Now Samuel, even though the people rejected him, and he wasn't ruling, and he wasn't reigning, and he was no longer their judge, he said, I am still going to teach you the right way, and I'll always pray for you. I'm still going to share the word of the truth the, of God's word with you. I'm still going to lay those things out. I'm still going to pray. Do you know the sad reality is in the Church today, if I want to have the smallest group I could ever possibly have, all I have to do is say we're having a prayer meeting. I shouldn't be that way. I think two years ago or somewhere around that, we put out Warriors on the Wall. Warriors on the Wall, just an opportunity to sign up and say, "I, I will be faithful to pray during this time on this day or that day or whatever day, your day. Whenever you want to do it. It's 168 hours to fill a week. And I think somewhere around 80 openings. So we're about half. But the, yeah, but the call's still there. 80 openings in the wall. But God says, through Samuel, right, far be it from me to sin and not pray for the people. Not that I'm, I'm not looking for that burden. I said, oh, that's my time. I've got to pray now. <clears throat> but the idea of having that, that heart, that desire to say, I want to talk to the Lord. I want to pray for the people. Hey, the first sign that there's a problem with me is going to come in my prayer life, not someplace else. It's going to first emerge there. First, there's going to be less and less and less and less time for prayer. Then there's going to be less and less time for other things. But it's going to start there. When people would go to, to Spurgeon's church and want to find out what's going on at his church, he always would say, this church is powered <clears throat> by prayer. And the largest meeting in his church was a prayer meeting. A friend of mine, a pastor in Corvallis in Oregon, same way. Started small, you know, was little, but... Just stay faithful. Just stay faithful. Keep going. It's become a real driving force within the body. And God does great things through it. Okay? We have to learn to be faithful men and women in prayer. <clears throat> and he goes on in verse 24. And only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly. You will be swept away, both you and your king. 
God's always going to deal with sin in our life, isn't he? Be sure your sin will find you out. What's done in secret will be shouted from the rooftops. God knows. We can't hide it from him. He sees. He sees our hearts. He sees that stuff. So Samuel gives this warning. He gives this warning to Saul, and everything goes all along pretty good. In fact, the scripture says, Saul reigned one year, and when he had reigned two years over Israel, Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash in the mountains of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent away, every man to his tent. 300,000 men had showed up when Saul made the call, remember? They all came and the Lord delivered and this incredible kind of revival happens and the people turn their eyes back to the Lord and they've had an opportunity to get a fresh start. We need fresh starts every once in a while in our lives, don't we? They got a fresh start. Things went along good. First year Saul reigns good. Second year Saul reigns. He sends home a lot of that 300,000. He only keeps 3,000. Two with him and one with his son Jonathan. And Jonathan, I like Jonathan. You guys like Jonathan? I like Jonathan because Jonathan was just a tough kid. Man. He was never afraid to go do what God laid on his heart to do. Whether with many or with few, right? He's going to take on the enemies of God. Faithful man, faithful friend for David. Well, we're introduced to him here the first time. In verse 3, the first thing we're told about Jonathan is he is not afraid. Jonathan attacked the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba. And the Philistines heard of it. So he takes his thousand. And I'm sure he probably said similar things to what he said to his armor bearer. You know, I don't know. The Lord can deliver them to our hands. We're many or few. They're the enemies of God. They're in our land. God wants us to drive them out. Let's go. And he went and did it. And the Philistines hear about it. But look what happens. We see the first step in the problems with Saul as Saul becomes arrogant and prideful. Don't miss it. It's right here in verse 3. Jonathan goes and he chases out those guys in Geba and the Philistines heard of it. And then Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land. Saul is going to, in this moment, take credit for what his son Jonathan has done. He blows the trumpet. And then he talks to the people in a derogatory term. The term Hebrews was something the foreigners of God always used. When the people of God were speaking to one another, they said the children of God. Or the children of Israel. They didn't call them the Hebrews. But he says, let the Hebrews come to me. You know, Saul blows the trumpet like he won the victory. And he says, hey, let's get." he just sent the army home. But he blows the trumpet. He's calling the people unto him. He calls them and says, uh, let the Hebrews hear. Now all of Israel heard it said that, what's it say? Saul had attacked the garrison of the Philistines. Who attacked the garrison of the Philistines? Jonathan. His boy. We know Saul liked the glory, don't we? Because in a few chapters, we're going to hear a, a song people started singing. You remember? Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. Oh, they got all upset about that, didn't he? He didn't like that. Here, the people heard, oh, Saul attacked the garrison of the Philistines. And that Israel also had also become an abomination to the Philistines. And the people were called together to Saul at Gilgal. So Saul calls for this force to come. Now when it says the Philistines considered them an abomination, you see, when the the Philistines ruled over the nation of Israel, they would not allow them to build any weapons. None. In fact, there is no way for them to even sharpen a weapon without going to a Philistine. They were the only blacksmiths. And as long as the children of Israel just were good and didn't pester the Philistines... And lived in subjection to them. Then the Philistines were okay. We won't bother you. Does that remind you of anything? Because you know in the life of a believer. As long as we're just satisfied with being a friend of the world. And a friend of the devil. You're not really going to have all that much grief. But you decide you want to be part of the fight. 
And you will become an abomination in the eyes of the enemy too. I can't even tell you how many guys say, you know, I give my life to the Lord and I start following him. And man, everything just going sideways. Well, yeah. Yeah, you, you change teams and the other team's upset. And, and there are going to be things that come against you. Jesus didn't pull any. He told people. It's going to be rough. He said the, the, uh, uh, the, uh, a man's own family, the sword of a man's own family will be against him. That Jesus divides. That having that relationship with him is going to be a dividing mark in people's families and with issue. Because now you change sides. You went from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And so here they, now Jonathan has started the, the war against the Philistines for their independence. David is going to finish it. I like that. Seems fitting, doesn't it? That Jonathan, who's going to be David's best friend on earth, would start it and David would finish it. Saul's going to fight some stuff in the middle, but these two guys, faithful men to God, are going to be the ones who start the war for independence and who finish it. <clears throat> Jonathan strikes that first thing, and Saul takes a credit, and he calls the people. It says, And the Philistines gathered together to fight with Israel. Well, that's nothing new, right? 30,000 chariots. You remember how many men Saul had? 2,000. And Jonathan had 1,000. That's 3,000. <clears> the Philistines come with 30,000 chariots. That's, think of that like tanks. And think of the children of Israel without weapons, with sticks, pointy little sticks, maybe a rock to throw at somebody, tanks. Tanks coming at them, 30,000 tanks. What else? 6,000 horsemen. <clears throat> and the people, like the sand which is on the seashore in multitude. That's Bible speak for a big, big army. 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horses, big, big army. And they are all coming for the children of Israel. Look what it says. And they came up and they encamped in Michmash, east of beth Aven. So the encampment of the Philistines comes 20 miles away from where Saul is. 20 miles away from where Saul is, they come to that place. They gather in that and it says, And when the men of Israel saw that they were in danger, for the people were distressed, then the people hid in the caves and in thickets and in rocks and in holes and in pits. What happened? Just a couple chapters ago, all their problems were going to be gone as soon as they got a king. Problems are still there, right? All my problems will be gone if I move. The problem is, I take me with me. So most of my problems are going to come too. My problems will all go away if I switch. I remember when I was a kid, <clears throat> growing up, I, I used to say, man, I... I wasn't a very good witness for the Lord in grade school. But when I get to junior high, I'm really going to get a fresh start. Oh, I wasn't a very good witness in junior high. But when I get to high school, man, I'm really going to turn it on. You know, I wasn't a very good witness in high school. But when I get to the Marine Corps, man, it's all going to go upside down. Yeah, you know... We have to learn that we just got to do it now, today. Not always looking for something else, some deliverance. Who delivers? God. Who strengthens? God. Who makes us able to walk? God. Who, who is the one who wins the victory? God. And who do we need to go to for all those things? The Lord. We got to go to Him. But here, you, you remember, right? All our problems will be solved if we have a king. Oops. 30,000 tanks, 6,000 horses, a big army. And they got 3,000 guys. And they don't even have 3,000 guys anymore because now they're hiding in the rocks and the hills and the caves wherever they can go, wherever they can run. In fact, look what the next verse tells us. Not only are they hiding in the rocks and the caves and the holes, but some of the Hebrews crossed over the Jordan. They just left. They left Israel. They went over to Gad. They're like, I'm out of here. See you later. As for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and all the people followed him. How? Trembling. <coughs> Man, we're going to see in a little while, he doesn't have very many people left. 
about 600 guys. Big army waiting. But God likes battles like that. You know, you ever face big odds in your life? God's, God really don't care about the odds. You and God make a majority. You know that? You plus God make a majority. Don't need anybody else. Don't need anybody else. You just need the Lord. You just need him with you. Well, <clears throat> it says in verse 8, And he waited seven days according to the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. Now I want you to picture what's going on in the, in the mind of Saul. Got these big problem. Big army, you know, Jonathan went down and started this war, and now here it is. And I called for the people, but they're all afraid, and they're hiding. And in chapter 10, verse 8, Samuel said, Whenever you gather the people together, wait for me for seven days, and I will come, and I will do the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, and I'll give the people that spiritual focus that they need before they go into battle. So here's Saul waiting, and it's seventh day. Where's Samuel? You can see him tapping his foot and watching people leave. My army was 2,000 people. It was down to 600 people. People are leaving. People going right and left. People are afraid. Any minute now, the Philistines are going to come over the top of the mountain and, and, and attack me, and I've got to do something. You ever felt that way? My life is so crazy and so messed up, and so there's so many. I got to do something. But don't forget what David wrote in the 46th Psalm. Be still and know I am God. Isaiah said it like this those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength, right? They'll mount up with wings like eagles. Run and not grow weary, walk and will not faint. They'll be ready for the battle, those who wait on the Lord. Samuel's not there, and he's waiting, and day one, two, three, four, five, six is gone, and it's day seven. And I don't think Samuel's coming. I got to do something. I got to do something to, to stop this, because look at the people running, and they're all afraid, and I just need to take over for God. I've done that before. I've looked at circumstances in my life and said, you know, there's no way out of this. Whenever I say that now, I I didn't know it so much back then. But whenever I say it now, you know what it reminds me of? The children of Israel, when they left Egypt. And the Bible says that God brought them between a rock and a hard place. Right in front of the Red Sea. They were trapped with nowhere to go. The army of Egypt coming behind them. They can't go this way. They can't go this way. They can't go this way. They can't go back. And sometimes we find ourselves in those places. And God said to Moses, Be still and see the wonderful works of your God. And the Red Sea parted. But you know, the Red Sea didn't part the first speck of the army they saw the red sea didn't part you know immediately as soon as they realized they were hedged in there's a period of time where the people are freaking out and going crazy and actually the lord moves the pillar of fire to their rear guard and separates the armies of pharaoh from being able to come in and attack the children of israel and yet they're waiting oh what are we going to do what are we going to do i felt like that before And I, like Saul, said, I got to do something. I can't just sit here and wait. So I did something. That's okay. God God met me there. But I always wondered, ever since that moment, what God would have done if I'd have waited a little bit longer. Do you know how long Saul needed to wait? One more hour. But he wouldn't wait. Filled up with pride and arrogance. And he thinks, I'm going to take the place of the priest. It's not lawful. He's just supposed to wait for Samuel. But he thinks everything's going to pot. The enemy's going to attack me. I got to do something. I got to do something. So the scripture tells us what he did. So Saul said, hey, bring a burnt offering and peace offerings here to me. And he offered 
the burnt offerings. He made the sacrifices. Well, listen, in, in Hebrews chapter 6, the writer of Hebrews would say this to us. He says in verse 9, Beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. For, for God is not unjust to forget your work and your labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end. That you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who, how through faith and patience, inherit the promise. Folks, you know how we inherit the promises of God? Through faith and patience. We still catch ourselves every once in a while saying things like, don't pray for patience. But you better start praying for patience. The writer of Hebrews says, we have need of endurance. Where's that endurance come from? Comes from patience working in our life. In fact, if we continue to turn right from the book of Hebrews, we come to the book of James. In James, in in chapter 1, he lays out for us this. We've heard it all before, right? My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Why? Knowing that the testing of your, what? Faith produces patience. Through faith and patience, they receive the promise. We don't get a shortcut it. We have got to have patience. We have got to allow our faith to grow and be tested so that our patience can, can manifest, so that we can see and grab a hold of the promises of God. We say, how did Abraham live his life looking forward to a promise that he never received? Through faith and patience. And how did he have the patience? God tested his faith. So here is Saul having a test of faith. And he needs one more hour to have a victory. But he couldn't wait. He needs to do something. I got to do something. Something's got to happen. Something's got to take place. So he does the burnt offerings himself. And it happened as soon as he had finished presenting the burnt offering, Samuel came. Every time I read that, I, I, I wonder, you know, those many years back when I took care of problems myself. Wonder what God would have done. I wonder how God would have had me delivered or would have strengthened me through it or would have, I don't, whatever, but I didn't let him. I found my own way. I don't want to do that anymore. I don't want to stop an hour too soon. Soon as he finished them, soon as he got done, there's Samuel. Oh, this can't be good, right? <clears throat> now it happened that Samuel came and Saul went out to meet him that he might greet him. Hey, Saul's thinking he's done good. Hey, Samuel, don't worry about it, brother. I took care of your stuff. I did the offerings. He thinks he's got a blessing coming. And Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, just like Adam before him, and Eve before him, he found somebody to blame. Right? Adam, what have you done? Well, Eve. Eve, what have you done? Well, the serpent. Serpent didn't have anybody to blame. Saul, what have you done? Well, <clears throat> when I saw that the people were scattering from me, right there we see a clue. We are to walk by faith, not by sight i saw the people leaving and i knew i had to do something i saw the size of the obstacle in front of me and i knew i had to to make a change i i saw that whatever whatever the thing is that we get our eyes on and we forget about god because god is able and sometimes god so he's so able he says i'm not going to deliver you I'm going to make you walk through the valley of the shadow of death. But don't worry, you won't be alone. I'll be with you. That's okay. 
Learning to trust the Lord. Hey, man, I saw these people scattering. And then who's he blame? And you didn't come within the days appointed. You were late, Samuel. I saw the people bailing and you were late. So if you want to be mad at somebody, be mad at yourself. It's your fault. You got to learn to take responsibility, right? You did not come within the days appointed. And then also the Philistines gathered together at Michmash. You're only 20 miles away. And listen to this. I want you to see how many times Saul refers to himself. Then I said, the Philistines will now come down on me at Gilgal. And I have not made the supplication to the Lord. Therefore, I felt compelled to offer a burnt offering. Where's his focus? His focus is not on the people. It's not on the nation. It's not on the Lord. His focus is on him. Anytime our focus becomes self-focus, we become selfish, focused on self, we are not walking according to the desire of God. He desires that we would be focused on others. That's what Paul wrote in Philippians, right? Esteem others greater than yourself, is what he said. Not mostly. Esteem others greater than yourself. Period. To be others-focused, even as Christ was others-focused. He's he's blaming Samuel. He's focused on himself. No reference to prayer. No reference on calling out on the name of the Lord. No reference to a relationship with God in, in any form. Just blaming everybody else. The people were leaving. Samuel was late. The Philistines were coming. And I felt compelled. But I can relate. Because I've been there too. I felt compelled. I had to do something. I didn't know what to do, so I had to do something. Been there. There but by the grace of God. I see it. I see it in me. I see it in the body of Christ today. There's a whole lot more Saul's than there are David's. Man, we, we, we need to take hold of, of what God is, is sharing with us here and just really apply it. And Paul wrote in Romans chapter 14, he wrote this. He said, listen, I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it's unclean. Paul's talking about those little gray areas that we all like to argue about, right? Hey, if you think it's unclean, he says it's unclean. Yeah, it's unclean to you. But if your brother is grieved because of your food or this issue, if your brother is grieved, you're no longer walking in love because you think you can walk in freedom. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. Do not destroy with your freedom someone for whom Christ died. Why? Because it's not about me. It's not about my rights. It's about my relationship with the Lord and their relationship with the Lord. So he says, therefore, do not let your good be spoken of as evil. Hey, he's saying it's not, I'm not saying what you're doing is bad. Paul's saying, I'm not saying what you're doing is, is sin. But if it causes a brother to have an issue or a stumble or, or trip up, then walk in the law of love. And don't do the things that are causing your brother to stumble. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. It's not about the stuff we can do or we can't do. It's not about the do's and the don'ts. But it's about righteousness and peace and joy. Not about everything else we think is so important. It's about righteousness, peace, and joy. That's the kingdom of God. That's where our focus is to be. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. Who walk in righteousness and peace and joy. Not focused on self, but he goes on. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things with which one may edify another. 
hey, let's do the things that are going to stir each other up. Not worried about tearing people down or, man, I'm pursuing peace, righteousness, peace, and joy. <coughs> I, want to, I want to have peace. I'm not going to try to destroy a brother with my freedom. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All things are pure. But it is evil for the man who eats with offense. It is good neither to eat or meat or to drink wine or do anything by which your brother stumbles. Or is offended or is made weak. Anything that we would do before a brother that would stumble him or offend him or weaken him. He says, don't do that stuff. Listen to this. Do you have faith? Well, have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But listen. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats. Because he does not eat from faith. What's the point? For whatever is not from faith is sin. Whatever is not from faith is sin. Saul was doomed the moment he wasn't walking by faith and he was walking by sight. As soon as his eyes saw the issue, well, think about it, Peter. When did Peter start to sink? When he started to see the waves and the wind and the storm, right? When he saw the size of the stuff before him. <clears throat> when he began to walk by sight, not by faith. Well, as we just close out this thought, as we look again at Saul, here Saul is, and he's saying all these things, and he's made this excuse, and Samuel said to Saul, you've done foolishly, and you have not kept the commandment of the Lord. Remember, he didn't keep the word of God. Saul told him in the chapter before, right? Be obedient to the word of God, to his commandments. God's word said the priest is supposed to do the sacrifices. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now, the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now, your kingdom will not continue. And the Lord is looking for himself, a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded for you. And Saul got up and went from Gilgal to Gibeah to Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people present with him. About 600 men. Crazy time, huh? The king from the height to the heights, he did so good two chapters ago, man. Now he has stumbled and fallen. And God says, I'm looking for a man. Who is a man after my own heart. I don't think God ever stops looking for those guys. Well, in Ezekiel, he says it like this. I'm looking for a man who will stand in the gap. God's always looking for that. For that man, man or woman or child. What do you mean? Yeah, you know God called people when they were seven years old? And made them kings? Or prophets? Or priests? Age is irrelevant. The heart. That's what God's looking for, right? Saul's problem was he could not get outside of what he could see. God's challenge for us is that call. Don't walk by sight. Walk by faith. Walk by faith. How are we going to walk by faith? Make God your king. Find a way to serve him. Be obedient to his voice. Be obedient to his word. And you will walk with the Lord your God all the days of your life. Amen? Would you stand with me and let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we just thank you for this time that we could <coughs> come before you, Lord Jesus, and, and study your word, God. And I just pray, Lord, that we would see, Father, you... You laid out, your son told us, Jesus said, man, you, you study the scriptures for in them you think you have life, but it is these who speak of me. Every story is about my relationship with you. 
everything going on and speaking to me, saying, Jackie, will you walk by faith and not by sight? Lord, you said if I had faith like a mustard seed, I could say to this mountain, be removed, and, and it would be cast into the sea. I could overcome the challenges in my life. I don't need humongous faith. I just need a little. A little faith in a mighty God. And it'll be okay. So God, I want to walk by faith. Not by sight. I don't want to be discouraged by the world events around me. I don't want to be discouraged by the economy. I don't want to be discouraged by the politics. I don't want to be discouraged by all the things I can get my eyes off of a mighty God and onto. I want to keep my eyes on you. I want to walk by faith. I want to pray for these people. I want to pray for this nation. I want to pray for the city in which I live and the the community in which I reside, the people that I care about. I want to pray and I want to see God move. Lord, your word doesn't declare that we have to have a room full of people before you'll move. Your word says the prayers of a righteous man avails much. You say it can start with just one. And that means we have a lot here to really make something happen. God, I pray that you would encourage each and every one of us. This is how I'm going to walk with the Lord. I need him to be my king. Not something else. I need him, you, Lord God, to be my king. Lord, I I, want to trust in you. I want to be obedient to your voice. I want to seek peace with people around me. I want to I want to walk by faith and and not by sight. God, I just want to I just want to be a man after God's own heart. And as we study, Lord, I pray that you just guide us day by day, moment by moment, step by step to walk in obedience to you. And you will do abundantly above and beyond all we can ask or imagine. For our God is able. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.